Brothers and sisters, let's take out our Bibles. And if you will, turn with me to Exodus 33. Here in just a moment, we'll begin in verse 17, and we'll finish out the chapter today. Exodus 33, verse 17 and following. Over the next two weeks, we come to what I believe to be the Holy Grail of the Old Testament. If you told me I could only keep two paragraphs of the entire Old Testament and the rest would be taken away from me for the rest of my life, I would choose this one here at the end of chapter 33 and the one at the beginning of chapter 34, which, Lord willing, we will look at next week. Now, you could argue that there are other texts that are more foundational, perhaps, might think of Genesis 1 through 3, those first three chapters. But for me, this is the Holy Grail of the Old Testament. These two paragraphs, they're the epicenter of the Old Testament, the heart of it all, the place where all the light comes from, if you will. Let's read one of them today, and next week, Lord willing, we'll get to the next. Exodus 33, beginning... In verse 17, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. And Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim my name before you, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand. Until I have passed by, and then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now, there is so much here that we won't be able to adequately cover it all today. So much here. At the beginning, in verse 17, we kind of come in at the, the middle of a thought. But God says, this very thing you have spoken, I will do. Right before this, Moses had asked God, please accompany us as we go to the promised land. Because God had threatened that he wasn't going to. Because the people, they were so stiff-necked, he'd destroy them on the way. And Moses says, please go with us. And we can't cover the fact that God hides Moses in a cleft of the rock while his glory passed by. There's so much there. There's so much food for thought and for meditation. But what we are going to look at today is Moses' request, verse 1, or the first one, Moses' request, and then second, we're going to look at God's warning. Moses' request and God's warning. The first, Moses' request. Now notice the boldness of Moses here. The boldness of Moses. Because he had already had unprecedented success in making requests to God. 
Even in these very chapters, Moses had had unprecedented success in making requests to God. If you remember in chapter 32, God says, leave me alone. I'm going to destroy these people who are down at the foot of the mountain worshiping a golden calf. And Moses intercedes with the Lord, says, please do not destroy them. And God relents. He listens to Moses' request. And then God says, I'm not going with you to the promised land. I'll destroy you on the way. And Moses says, please go with us. He pleads with God and God grants him that request. And so you would think Moses should quit while he is ahead here. That's what I would think. Quit while you're ahead. You've gotten more than you ever deserved from God. Unprecedented access to God and unprecedented success in making requests. Just quit while you're ahead. But no, he pushes for more. And he boldly asks God in verse 18, please show me your glory. Now, I imagine when Moses prayed this prayer, I imagine the angels in heaven were left with their mouths hanging open, gazing in wonder at this human being who would dare ask such a thing from God. This is perhaps the most God-honoring, God-centered prayer in all the Bible. When you consider the man praying it and the setting, he does not ask, God, please make my dreams come true. He does not ask, God, please make me an influential person. He does not say, please honor me among the Israelites. He has forgotten himself completely. And he says, please show me your glory. Let me see it. My friends, we are so focused on ourselves today. We are so focused on ourselves. My hopes, my dreams, my goals, my self-esteem, my happiness. Satan has convinced us that if we focus on ourselves, then we will be happy. Just look at our society. Look at where it's led us. It's proof itself. We are the most self-focused, introspective society in the history of the world, and we're also the least content and the least happy. John Piper writes, We are all starved for the glory of God, not self. No one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase their self-esteem. Why do we go? Because there is greater healing for the soul in beholding splendor than there is in beholding self. God is calling us, like Moses here, to forget about ourselves and to take our eyes off of ourselves and to fix them on him and his glory. This prayer from Moses is as God-centered as it gets. This prayer is actually God-honoring in a way that not even the prayers of Christ himself could be. Let me explain what I mean there. Moses is just a man. Christ was a man, but not only a man. He was fully God and fully man. Moses is just a man and an imperfect, sinful one at that. Of course, the prayers of Jesus would be God-honoring and God-centered because he wasn't just a man. He's fully God. He's sinless. But a prayer like this coming from a sinful, imperfect man. It's honoring to God in a way that not even the prayers of Christ could have been. 
Do you remember the story of Jesus and the Roman centurion from the Gospels? The Roman centurion who has a servant that is paralyzed and ill, and he begs of Jesus to heal him. And Jesus says initially, I will come with you. I'll go with you and I will heal him. And the the Roman centurion, remember this is a Roman, not an Israelite. He says to Jesus, no, I am not worthy to have you come into my house. But I understand words of authority because I'm a centurion. He's over a bunch of other soldiers. And he says, I understand words of authority because when I say to a soldier, go, he goes. And when I say to one, come, he comes. And so he says to Jesus, if you just say the word, he'll be healed. And Jesus, it says, marvels at his faith and says that he hasn't found such faith in all of Israel. No Israelite has exhibited such faith as this Roman centurion who said, you don't even have to be there. Distance doesn't matter. You just say the word and he's healed. Jesus marvels at his faith. Well, I said before, I think in heaven, the angels were marveling at this prayer from Moses. I think they were staring at him in wonder at this human being Because none of them would have dared to make such a request from God. Yet this ignorant human with no sense of impropriety boldly asks to see what has never been seen. No one had ever prayed like this. Do you believe that what you need more than anything is to see the glory of God? Do you believe that? Do you actually believe That you need that more than you need anything else? In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul writes, We all, with unveiled face, actually a reference to Moses there, beholding the glory of God, or the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Beholding the glory of God, we are being transformed into his image. From one degree of glory to another. Beholding the glory of God. But how many of us, if we take an honest look at our lives, are not beholding the glory of God? And how many of us, if we're honest, don't really even care about it? Perhaps the one thing that discourages my heart most as a pastor is to see people consistently care more about worldly things than about enjoying God and seeing his glory. It's probably the most discouraging thing as a pastor. And I am afraid, afraid that many of us are like the rich young ruler, where if Jesus put the choice to you, That you could have your job or God, that many of you would choose your job. That if Jesus put it to you, that you could have your comfort and your nice house and your money or God, that you would choose your comfort. Or if Jesus put it to you, that you can have your family's recreation activities or God, that many of you would walk away sad choosing 
the recreation activities. Some of us are already regularly making these choices. How long are we going to choose temporary lesser things over the glory of God? The glory of God. This is a being that had no beginning. Can you just stop for a moment and let that hit you? God has no beginning. There was never a time where he did not exist. Mentally, you can go back in your mental timeline as far as you can physically do it. And he was there. And then multiply that by two and he was there. And then multiply that by two and he was there. Infinity into the past. He has never not existed. Let that hit you for a moment. This is a God who made the universe with merely a word from his mouth. This is the God who sustains every atom in this universe every second. And if he stopped doing so for even a moment, it would all end. This is a God who is so powerful that this sustaining of every atom in the universe every second does not tax him in the least. He never grows tired. He never grows weary. This is the God who hears every prayer, sees every event, knows the location and condition of every bird, every ant, every fish, every gnat, every microbe and bacteria. He oversees billions of galaxies with millions and billions of stars in each galaxy. And the Bible tells us he has a different name for every single one of those stars. And this is not hard for him. He is so big and so powerful, galaxies are his playthings. If he were wearing a coat, he would put them in his pocket and carry them around. The nations rage against him. Worldly leaders puff themselves up. And the Bible says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. It's like he says, oh, that's cute. They think they're powerful. The greatest minds in history, the most intelligent geniuses the world has ever known, will stand before God at the judgment, baffled and silent, as he poses simple questions that they cannot even begin to answer. And you, you are but a subatomic, microscopic speck in all the vastness of the creation he manages, and yet he knows the number of hairs on your head, even though it will change throughout today. (laughs) And he knows every thought you've ever had in the deepest, darkest, secret corners of your mind. That's the God we're talking about. Show me your glory. Do you long to see it? Do you long to see his glory more and more? Moses did. And he wanted nothing more than that, than to see God's glory. And what was God's response? What was his answer to that request? His answer was, you can't. You can't. You would explode. It's too much for you to handle, which leads us to God's warning. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 in our text. 
God says, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Man shall not see me and live. He goes on to say, I'm going to show you my back, but you can't see my face. I'm going to show you my back as I take my hand away from the cleft of the rock I'm hiding you in. I'll show you my back. Some translations will render that the place where I have just been. My residual glory, if you will. And the reason translations sometimes do that is because, we talked about this last week, God does not literally have a face or a back or any other body parts for that matter. He's a spirit. He's a spirit being. What God is saying here is, you cannot see me in my unveiled glory and live to tell about it. You can't see my glory and live to tell about it. We see this principle all over the Bible, actually. It's flowing through all over the Bible if you pay attention. In the New Testament, the Apostle John writes two different times. In John 1.18 and 1 John 4.12, no one has ever seen God. He says no one's ever seen God. Ever. No one has ever seen him. Paul, in 1 Timothy 6.16, speaks of this God whom no one has ever seen or can see. You can't see God. Y'all remember The Wizard of Oz? I wore that tape out when I was a kid. Wizard of Oz, okay? So Dorothy and the lion and the tin man and the scarecrow, they finally get to the Emerald City, right? And they they ring the bell, and out pops Frank Morgan, right? The the guy who plays all the different characters, the wizard and the professor and all this stuff. And he's he's brilliant in that show, but he's the doorman right now. He pops out, who rang that bell? You remember this? And they said, we did. And he's like, what what, what about the notice? You're supposed to knock. And they were like, what notice? And he puts out the sign. It's all funny. But finally they knock, and he says, state your business. And they say, we want to see the wizard. And he gets all flustered. The wizard, right? You can't see the great Oz. No one's ever seen the great Oz. Not even I've seen him. And then Dorothy just matter-of-factly asks, well, then how do you know there is one? That's a good question. That's a good question right there. No one's ever seen God. So how do you know there is one? That sounds like a question that would come from some of our intelligent, creative mind kids, right? How do you know there is one if no one's ever seen him? Well, we serve a God who reveals himself in many different ways. Now, there are times in the the Bible where God revealed himself in such a way where it seems like people did see God. Can you think about some of those? In the Bible, it seems like people have seen God. John says, and Paul says, no one's ever seen God, but it seems like they have, even in the Bible, right? But if you pay attention to these moments you'll find that it is God manifesting himself to people in a a visual presence that they can handle, that will not cause them to die. It's a lesser or veiled form of himself. He presents himself to, say, Jacob in Genesis 32 when they wrestle, right? Or Adam and Eve in the garden, or Moses and Aaron and the elders in Exodus 24, or Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6. All of these are God manifesting himself to people in a form that wouldn't destroy them. It's not his full glory. So John and Paul can still say, and rightly so, no one has ever seen God. 
But in Jesus, God did something unique, right? In Jesus, God shows up in a way that he, he never had before. This is something unique, the incarnation. God becomes a man. And in John 1.18, I just quoted you the, the first half of that verse. Let me quote you the full verse. John 1.18. It says, no one has ever seen God. And then it says, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now notice there, notice there the language. It says the only God who is at the Father's side, right? And John's already mentioned this in the very first verse of his his gospel. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. But it says he has made God known. No one's ever seen God but Jesus. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. Colossians 1 says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God's invisible, but he's got an image you can look at and see him. It's Jesus. John 14, starting in verse 8, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. And it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen God. No one's ever seen God, but people did see Jesus. And so God is a God who reveals himself. He revealed himself in Jesus, but he's revealed himself even more fully to those who didn't live at the time where Jesus lived. He's revealed himself through his word, through his word. Now, the word is not something that we can see with our physical eyes, some kind of visual representation of God. No, it's words. It's words. And so since God has revealed himself to us in the word, in the words of the Bible, we must see him with what Paul calls in Ephesians 1, the eyes of our hearts. We sing that song sometimes, open the eyes of our hearts, Lord. The eyes of our hearts, our hearts have eyes. It's not just your physical eyes, you've got other eyes, spiritual eyes. Listen to this intriguing verse from Hebrews 11, talking about Moses. Now, you remember Hebrews 11 as that chapter about all the heroes of the faith in the Old Testament. Well, in Hebrews 11, it says of Moses, By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He saw God, even though God's invisible. How are you going to see what's invisible? And here, with the eyes of our hearts, no one may see God and live. That's a principle set in stone. No one may see God and live. And yet, at the same time, no one can truly live unless they first see God. You understand? No one can truly live unless they see God. No one will have eternal life. Unless during this life they see God with the eyes of their hearts. Have you seen him? Have you seen him with the eyes of your heart? Louis Zamperini was a World War II airman whose story is is told in a wonderful book called Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand. Really encourage you to read it if you have the inclination. But Louis Zamperini, World War II airman... He suffered horribly 
in Japanese POW camps. After his plane had crashed in the middle of the ocean, he finally reaches land, and lo and behold, the people that find him end up putting him in these POW camps and torturing him and almost starving him and causing him to to live in conditions that none of us would, would ever, ever want anyone, even our worst enemies, to live in. Well, the war ended, and he, he came home, finally, and he survived it. But he had a really hard time assimilating back into normal life. He came home to California, but, but he had all kinds of troubles, as you could imagine. Now, his wife, at one point, in 1949, forced him to attend a Billy Graham crusade in Los Angeles, the, the famous one that made Billy Graham popular. And Louis Zamperini tells the account of it, and he says he was deeply convicted and unnerved when Billy Graham said the following, What God asks of men is faith. His invisibility is the truest test of that faith. To know who sees him, God makes himself unseen. To test our faith, to see who who will see him with the eyes of their hearts. Faith is seeing the invisible. It's what faith is. Seeing the unseen God with the eyes of our hearts. And since God cannot be seen with our physical eyes, it stands to reason that those who do not have their physical sight would more quickly learn to see God with the eyes of their hearts than the rest of us who do. We think about someone like Fanny Crosby. Flip through your hymnal sometime and see how many times her name comes up as the writer of so many of the the great hymns of the, the history of the English language. And she was blind. She was completely blind. And yet she saw God with the eyes of her heart in a way that most people who have their physical sight cannot see. Or we might think of Helen Keller Steve DeWitt tells the story of Helen Keller very briefly in his book, Eyes Wide Open. But he writes, as a very young girl, Helen Keller contracted scarlet fever, which left her completely deaf and blind. Can you imagine? Unable to communicate at all, deaf and blind. At a young age, she began asking the basic human questions. Where did I come from? Where will I go when I die? A 20-year-old woman named Ann Sullivan became her teacher, and they developed a relationship that would continue on for 49 years. The big breakthrough for communication came when Miss Sullivan made motions on Helen's palm while running water on her hand, and Helen figured out that the motion symbolized the idea of water. And from there, she learned to speak by holding her fingers over another person's mouth as they spoke and mimicking the shape of their mouth to form words. She learned Braille and was able to read not only in English, but eventually French, German, Greek, and Latin. Absolutely amazing. But on one special day, Ann Sullivan decided to tell Helen Keller about God. and She worked herself up to do it. And after the explanation, Helen Keller responded that she already knew him. She just didn't know his name. 
We serve a God who reveals himself in so many ways. He reveals himself to his people. And the question is, will we pursue the sight of his glory from the eyes of our hearts? Or will we settle for lesser things? Right now, we're going to spend some time in prayer. And I challenge you, I encourage you to go to God right now, just you and him. And respond to whatever he's laid upon your heart through his word this morning. We'll give a few minutes for all of us to do that. And after we spend some time in individual silent prayer, we'll come back and we'll have an invitation time where anyone who needs to respond to God's word publicly can do so. Right now, let's pray.